Why, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jaap van Beek, aka James Monaco, and welcome to another episode of the Monaco Moments podcast. So, in the third episode, we are talking to Luik Roldan Wiles. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Luik has been a very good friend of mine for about seven years now, and he's an incredibly smart guy. Uh, he's currently a data scientist, he's a, a big time sailor as well, and also is a sailing instructor. And in today's episode, we get into all sorts of interesting topics. We talk about uh, science, we talk about statistics, we talk about learning, about how to teach, uh, and we also, in the end, get into some fun questions from the book of questions. So, I hope you guys will enjoy. So, without further ado, I bring you Loic Rolden Wells. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the third ever episode of Monocle Moments, the podcast. Uh, my guest today is Luik Roland Wiles. Luik, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks. So, Luik, uh, we go way back. We're really good friends. We studied together uh, at Rotterdam School of Management. Uh, for the people that don't know you, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. How far uh, back should I go? As far as you wish. As far as I wish. It all started in 19... Blah, blah, blah. No. Um, so I grew up in, in the Netherlands, but my family came half from Spain. Uh, so I always grew up as a kind of international kid in a, in a Dutch environment, which in the past was hard, but now I really enjoy it. Uh, that international aspect is what drove me in the end to study in Rotterdam, where I'm at Yap. Uh, and the study that we did was international as well, so it was all in English. Uh, and then in the end, I decided to stay in, in Rotterdam as well uh, for my master's. I traveled quite a bit. I've been to South Africa for an exchange, and I also went to Singapore for an exchange. So I like to think that I'm internationally oriented, but of course that's for everyone else uh, to judge themselves. Uh, and then in my free time, I either like to learn things or I like to teach things which are kind of closely related. And what else? What else, uh, what would you say is a fun fact about me? A fun fact about you? Um, I mean, there's so many things about you, man. Like, uh, indeed, when you say the learning and the teaching, I definitely want to get into that because you're like a pro at that to me, it seems. Um, yeah, you like bananas, but we'll get into that like way, way later. That's an inside joke for people. They'll get it later. Um, but actually, I just want to go back to something you said just now. You said that the international thing is something you struggled with or being an international mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's two things. First of all, the fact that uh, at home I didn't speak Dutch. I spoke Spanish with my parents. Mm -hmm. um, so I had my French in Dutch friends in Dutch and then my family in Spanish and then I did uh, studied in English uh, and my friends of course are are used to it and they accept it because they are my friends but there are quite a lot of people who uh, didn't accept it fully and when I was very very young that was very difficult to understand I think the best example when I was super super young is I got really mad at people because I thought they pretended to not understand me but that's because I was speaking Spanish to them when they were Dutch um, oh, really? So, yeah, when I was, uh, I think I was like four when I got here. Uh, and in kindergarten, I was like, ¿Quieres jugar conmigo? And everyone's like, I don't understand what you're saying. And I got okay. really mad at that. Um, 
So that was quite difficult in the beginning, but then I realized that a lot of the other international people uh, that I've met throughout my life, like you actually, uh, they kind of had the same feeling and in turn to adapt, they found it really easy to make friends uh, really easily. So then I was drawn more towards these international people because they were also friendly because all of them got really good at making friends. So that's what ended up pushing me even more towards the international field, let's say. Yeah, so that's something that I actually struggled with also when I lived in the south of France. Like at some point you become really good at making friends because people come and go so much. But then at some point um, it also, at least for me, at some point it took a little bit more effort to get into deep relationships because you're so used to people leaving again as well. I don't know if that was a thing for you. Yeah, and especially with university. Uh, for example, one of our friends uh, that we met in our bachelor, we had a great three years together, but now she moved away to, to London and it's really fun when we see each other again, but it's not like you can just hang out ever, every week like we used to. Um, yep. So now the friend group has completely changed because uh, I'm way busier working. Uh, I did my master's, so I made friends in my master's. But then again, keeping in touch with them is hard, especially if they move abroad, which is, again, the downside of uh, international friends, let's say. Um, yeah, I agree. But yeah, you get used to it. Exactly. Um, so... One thing that I would like to actually just start on is your thing with with learning and teaching. Maybe you can give us a little intro there. Okay, where shall I start? Learning or teaching? Um, let's start with learning, because I assume that's where it started, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> so, my dad was quite... Uh, he really emphasized that school is the most important thing. Uh, like, I used to do algebra when uh, everyone else was still doing, like, subtractions and multiplications and stuff. Uh, I wasn't very good at it, but my father forced me into these problems and I, f I found it horrible in the beginning because uh, I was like, why do I need to do this? Like, I'm doing fine in school. Why do I need to do all these extra things? <laughs> but of course, in hindsight, that is always right. Uh, so I, when we actually got to algebra in, in high school, it was really easy for me and everything made intuitive sense. Um, mm -hmm. And I still have it now that intuitively, uh, the math really helps me convince of certain arguments. But it's mm -hmm. also, um, I'm, I wasn't sure what it was called. I think the, the boundary of knowledge or something, that the more you know, the more you notice that you're missing stuff. Um, yeah. So the more I started learning, the more I noticed that I was missing things. And at the end of high school, I was really, really, really doubting between um, either a business study, which I eventually ended up choosing, or um, uh, let's say a STEM study in Delft. In the yeah. end, I chose the, the business study because of the international environment. But then now, of course, I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe I, while I'm working, I can brush up on some of the, the STEM stuff. So I used to be really into biology and physics. And in my free time, I kind of re read up on those things. For example, when the, the picture of the black hole was discovered or it was taken and shown to us, uh, yeah. that was super, super exciting. But um, a lot of the extra in-depth mathematics that you need to really understand that that's what i'm missing and that's what i'm trying to brush up on um but then the second thing i'm also really really interested in is coding yeah. and i already started with python i'm quite far with that i think i have three four years of experience with that now so yeah. that's really really fun but i still know how much i'm missing and that uh that allows me to find new subjects that I find interesting and then put a lot of time into them 
to better understand them. And when I learn something new, it's super, super rewarding. And of course, when I learn something new, the first thing I want to do is show someone else or teach someone else. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's exactly what I want to get into because I think there's two nice examples of you learning and then showing it to other people. And I think I can have you give two examples. And the first one was when you showed me one of your Python projects when we were studying Python. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe share it with everyone? Which uh, project did I show you? The one about toilet paper. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking <laughs> of uh, sequences of numbers. Um, and generally with sequences of numbers is you either have a seed or you start with a number and then you apply a certain operation to it and see how that sequence evolves. Like a, a really famous and easy example is the Fibonacci sequence. So you have two numbers mm -hmm. and you just add the previous two numbers to get the next number. Uh, right. So that's a really, really easy example. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, all the best ideas happen in the bathroom, either on the toilet or in the shower. And Do I they? was folding some toilet paper. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, one layer is not enough. I need to fold it over so I have two layers. Uh, but then imagine you have really, really crappy toilet paper, like really crappy toilet paper. And you need to fold it more than two times. Uh, or you need to have more than two layers. How many times would you need to fold that toilet paper for you to be able to get that number of um, of layers so you can wipe safely. And yeah. that was a really interesting problem because then <laughs> it brought up... So I first thought, imagine you can only either fold one extra half, so yeah. you, let's say, add one layer, or you can double the layers by folding the whole thing that you have extra layers on in half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you can either multiply the layers by two, or you can add one layer. And then if you need a certain amount of layers, how many operations do you need to get it? And instead of actually think about it, thinking about it, the nice thing about code is you can kind of cheat by simulating a lot of it. So I wrote some code mm -hmm. that either checked if it's an odd number, divide by two, because you can, of course, uh, work backwards. If you need 10 layers, you can't get 10 layers by, uh, or you can get 10 layers by folding it in half. So then you get five mm -hmm. layers. Um, and then you cannot get five layers by folding it in half. You need to add one layer, so you need to get four. And then I checked what the limit was of uh, the growth of these numbers as you uh, expanded it. And it turns out it was the logarithm of two, which is, <laughs> of course, very intuitive if you, if you actually see it, because you think, well, if, it's, if the number of layers that you want is a power of two, yeah. then you can, of course, divide all the way down to two, uh, two to one. Yeah. But if you, if it's not a multiple or if it's not a power of two, that mm -hmm. means that you need to do one of these little steps of uh, adding one instead of multiplying by two. And of course, adding by one is very, very inefficient. So you're always going to have fewer steps than uh, log two. And it was a really, really fun thing. But then I, of course, thought, well, if that's the upper limit, what's the lower limit? <laughs> and that was a lot harder to, to come by. And that's where I noticed that my mathematical uh, background, let's say, was not as as neat and fine-tuned as I'd like. Uh, I eventually got the answer, but it was not. It took me way longer than it should have. But not it was easy to check, way. of course. Sorry. It was maybe not the most elegant way of getting there. Exactly, and I had mm -hmm. it checked by some other people. Like, hey, if these are my my assumptions, is it right? Um, but then, of course, there came another assumption, which was I said you can either add one extra layer or you can fold it in half and double the amount of layers. But what's, yeah. uh, what if you're really skilled and you can, let's say, 
fold it three times in one go? And what about yeah. four times? Um, and that, that I haven't looked into <laughs> yet, how the limits depend on how many times you can fold in one go. But to keep it easy, I just said, uh, you can only fold in half or add one layer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason I love this example is because you know, this is one of the projects you were working on. My first real Python project was trying to analyze the car market so I could get myself a good deal. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think what it illustrates is that you're really into learning because you find the process of learning interesting, it seems to me, whereas I would more quickly go for something that would, you know, kind of like bring me something, right, mm -hmm. in a sense. So um, that's one thing I liked. So, th so the other example that I, that I had to think about was uh, the way that we used to spend our breaks at uni, maybe, mm -hmm. if you remember. Yeah, it's... Uh... I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos where they had mathematical problems or paradoxes, and then you either had to, you need to find an, a little trick to make it work. And of course, it's really easy uh, to do it by yourself when you're focused in a, in a room and you have all the time in the world, which is how I solved them. But I was really interested in seeing how other people would solve them. And if there was maybe another way of, uh, of doing it, which is... Uh, how I came to, sh uh, to show it to you guys. Yeah. So so is, is that what is fun about showing riddles or is there something else that you really enjoy about riddles? Like, well, what is it that... Because I feel like when I think Luik, I think riddles because you <laughs> always have some sort of riddle. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what's what your thing is with riddles? Yeah, so in the end, riddles are just uh, examples of ways to solve problems. And usually when you solve problems, you either use a lesson that you've learned in the past, or you need to learn a new lesson to be able to solve this problem. So it goes back to learning new things and teaching new things. Because when I'm doing the riddle myself, I'm learning because I either solve the problem and then I'm like, yes, okay, what I learned is useful, mm -hmm. semi-useful. Um, but if I, I don't figure it out, all those videos have an explanation. And usually it's a really, really basic explanation that everyone can get. And then if I am able to, sh to show this to other people and teach them to make the same steps and maybe mm -hmm. not give them the answer straight away if they are not able to solve it, but give them hints so they can solve it themselves, then for me, that's also a success because I just showed someone uh, something cool that I didn't know before and they didn't know before, and now all of us know. So the, the growth of people's knowledge, that's what really fascinates me, and that's what I find really cool. Yeah. So you've done loads of teaching already uh, mm -hmm. at your at your prime young age, so to say. So uh, <laughs> can you share some of the things that you've already done? Yeah, I think the first, the there's two things that really started my teaching. First of all, was in high school. I used to give some um, some extra lessons to kids that were a year below me, and it was mainly with uh, math and physics, I think. Uh, but that was really short term and I just did it a couple of times. But then the other thing that really, let's say, kick-started my teaching was when I started sailing. Because I started oh, sailing really? with obviously no knowledge of sailing. So I started at zero. And then I did one year of classes and I really, really liked it. Uh, so then the next year, my instructor said, hey, would you like to become a teacher? Uh, would you like to be, become a sailing instructor. And I was really, really excited about that because to me that meant extra, extra sailing. So more time sailing, which I also really <laughs> enjoyed. Um, so then the next year I spent kind of as a instructor 
on a traineeship. Uh, so then I, I sailed a lot and I didn't just learn more about sailing because of course you have to be a really good sailor to teach sailing, but I also learned a lot of ways to bring across problems to people so that they can solve it easily. Because if you just dump a problem on someone, very, very often they'll be lost in it because they don't know where to start. And I have that problem very often as well when I'm learning new things. Uh, but if mm -hmm. you can break it down in such a way that they have multiple simple problems that they can solve, it usually becomes much easier to learn new things. And what I really liked about that sailing job is mm -hmm. that the people uh, are of very, very, very different backgrounds. Uh, you had international people, you had local people, you had people that uh, already sailed on a, on a family boat, let's say, other people that had never even been on the, on the sea on a boat. Um, right. And the biggest difference, I would say, would uh, be the age difference, because I taught people that were like 10, 12, all the way up to 50, and it's really funny how people learn at different rates, but everyone reacts the same way when they're on a on a boat with a really, really big wave uh, at sea for the first time. Everyone is yeah. uh, incredibly scared, and it's really, really funny to see because you know everything's fine. Um, but that's that's what really started my, uh, my learning career, let's say. And then in university, I... Uh, I was a TA for two different subjects. One was statistics and the other was supply chain. And TA is a uh, TA's teaching assistance for those people that don't know that. Go on. Yeah. So a teaching assistant is usually someone who the the next year they ask the, the good students, hey, uh, we're going to do workshops for this course. And do you want to guide people through the workshops? And workshops and usually of consisted students. of people getting homework. And then in the workshops, we work through those problems together and then if people have questions of, hey, but why did you do that step? Then I could explain it to them. Hmm, exactly. So could you give us maybe an example of something you were learning and you were struggling? Like you, you mentioned earlier that you, you break it up in small steps. Mm -hmm. uh, could you give an example of where you, where you struggled learning yourself? Uh, I would say that statistics was really unintuitive for me because in, in, I grew up with the Dutch high school system. And in the Dutch high school system, you have different kinds of math that you can follow. Um, and the hardest uh, in between quotation marks is the one with trigonometry, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And that's the one I took. Uh, but the, the track that has trigonometry doesn't have any statistics whatsoever. So when I got to university and I started doing statistics, I was really, really confused of, but why does the distribution matter? And why does this matter? And but doesn't isn't that not the same as that uh, and i was really really confused and in the end what what helped me uh, overcome it is just doing loads of exercises and then eventually the teachers are going to run out of different types of exercises to ask of you uh, for the exam and they just have to change the numbers so that's how i let's say cheated my way through it by just doing all the exercises um, but what i found really difficult is when they say they give you information about a problem and then they say for example uh so are these two populations different? Let's say income, you get some information about uh, two populations, and then they just say, are the, do, the, do these two populations earn different amounts on average? Mm -hmm. And to me, those problems were really, really difficult because there were a lot of assumptions that to me weren't clear straight away. But then if you right. break it down into steps like, okay, which, which kind of comparison are you making? Okay, you're comparing two means, so that that narrows it down to either let's uh, let's say a student t test, and that makes it way easier to focus on things because then you don't 
need to worry about the same things as, for example, a chi-square test. Yeah. That all that stuff doesn't matter anymore because you're only focusing on the difference between the means and whether they're statistically significant. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're looking at this t-test and you think, okay, what do I need to fill in this formula? And then it becomes way more targeted of a search instead of just saying, okay, where do I start? And I think that was the that's the best example because statistics didn't come naturally to me. It was very, very difficult for me. Um, and in the end, I just figured it out uh, through lots of exercise. But then mm -hmm. after I got it through the exercise, I was able to explain it next year to people in a more intuitive way. Yeah, because that's, that's what I was going to ask. Like, do you feel like maybe the people teaching you kind of failed to make it simple enough for you to understand? Well, that was uh, that's actually, I don't know where I heard this uh, recently, but this is actually something that's really, really difficult to gauge. Um, if you understand something, it's really, really hard to tell how hard it is for someone else. Um, I think there was a math Olympics puzzle recently, and usually, so the way the math Olympics puzzles uh, go is you have two tests, each of three questions, and the mm -hmm. first question is easy, the second one is harder, mm -hmm. and the third one is the hardest. And then of course, easy is like math Olympiad easy, so it's not easy uh, in our sense of the word. Um, <laughs> but then there was one Olympiad where the second problem of the first test was only solved by like two or three people. Um, and that, that's because you had to find this one kind of invariant, which was really, really hard to find. Uh, an invariant is something that doesn't change if you change uh, some conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was a fault of the, um, of the organizers of the, of the Math Olympiad. But of course, these people know what they're doing because they're organizing Math Olympiads. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not like these are new. These have been going on for many, many years. And even for them, it's really, really difficult to see how difficult a problem is, even for super, super smart people. Um, so wow. that's something that I really, really struggle with in the beginning uh, with teaching, uh, with sailing. Um, one of the basics of sailing is knots. Uh, so if I told someone, just do knot number A here, and then you can attach it in this way, I really, really quickly noticed that sometimes when people don't know knot A, they try to figure it out but then they get stuck somewhere else because they weren't able to do to make the knot that they were supposed mm. to um so then the way i found around that is first asking can you do knot a because then it's way easier to say yes or no and if the answer is no i can show them immediately um, and this is only possible if you really have either let's say a small group or a small class because this is mm. very, very very doable if you have two people that you're teaching on a boat or a class of 20 people where you can talk to everyone. But of course, yeah. if you're a professor in a lecture hall with 2,000 or five, 500 people, you can't, or it's more, it's harder to, to give this level of dedication because you need to make sure all the students understand everything. And of course, some students think some things are easy, whereas other, uh, others think that it's hard. And the more people you have, the, uh, I'm assuming at least that the distribution is larger. So. Yeah, it's harder to keep everything interesting for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, you already you were a pretty good student, I would say. I'm sure you'd agree. Well, I'm not sure I agree, <laughs> but but so, let's uh, uh, go past that. Yeah. Well, that's exactly actually what I want to go to. If you're okay with that, um, I, I'm just curious. Like one thing that has always confused me. Uh, a little bit is 
it seems like you're one of the smartest people I know in so many ways, but it seems like in a sense, you don't seem to fully realize it. Could you comment on that at all? Mm, maybe it's so assuming what you say is true. Uh, so let's assume what you say is true. Which then is. Maybe it's again, the thing of um, the boundary of knowledge where the more, you know, the more you know that you don't know. Um, so maybe because, when I make mistakes, I remember all the mistakes I make. I'm like, oh, well, actually, I'm not that good because look at how, how often I did things wrong. And if we go back to the, the statistics um, exam that I took, uh, yeah. like the first statistics exam that I took in university, I made so many mistakes during the practice exercises. And very, very often with these kinds of math problems, if you know the answer, you cannot do the problem again because you already know what the trick is. Um, so while studying, I was thinking constantly like, oh my God, I got like a quarter of the questions wrong. I'm going to feel so bad. And then, <laughs> yeah. uh, in the actual exam, it goes much easier because all those tricks that you missed the first time, you don't miss the second time when you're doing them in the exam. But of mm -hmm. course you only spend, let's say half an hour or two hours, uh, doing the exam, whereas you mm -hmm. spend way more time studying and Definitely. all those moments where I'm studying, I'm only focusing on the mistakes. Because if something goes well, then you just move on. So you don't spend as much time on it. So, so you're biased to think that you're not good because you focus on the mistakes, kind of. I think so, yeah. So hmm. I, uh, I only remember the mistakes. And that makes it, yeah, I think, I think that's it. That I focus more on the mistakes because those are the areas that I can improve in. And because of that, I kind of lose sight on the things that I'm good at. It's interesting because I feel like with some smart people that I also follow on the internet, that they can be quite worried in general because it seems like they focus only on the bad things and they become really good at solving those bad things, but it also makes them kind of more anxious or worried people in general. Could you find yourself in that? Oh, so this is more, this is not for the problem solving, but just in, in life in general. Yeah, this is more in general now. Maybe. Because, of course, if you focus on the problems while studying statistics, you don't just focus on the problems during statistics. You, you focus on all the problems everywhere. Um, mm. And especially if you're, if you're comparing yourself to a large group of people, um, you're bound to do worse than at least one person in the giant group of people. Um, yeah. if, I, if I may suddenly put in a, f a fun fact out there that I recently learned... Um, I recently saw a proof on how almost always your friends have more friends than you. Um, and that's because the people that have more friends are more represented in your friend group. They're more likely to be included in your friend group because they have more friends. So you're more likely to be one of their friends. So if you, if you put yourself in a situation like that, where you're comparing yourself to other people, then it's really, really easy to say, oh, well, but he did it better than me. And especially in university, that was, it's extra easy because then it's just like, oh, I got an eight, but that person got a, a 9.5. Um, or for example, during the graduation ceremony, everyone gets their diplomas and then comes the cum, uh, the cum laudes, but then comes mm -hmm. the summa cum laudes. And these are people that have exactly. like a 9.5 average. And then it's really, Crazy. really, really yeah. easy to say, well, I, I don't have that average. Hence, I must have done a lot worse, which yeah. is not necessarily the case, but of course, uh, we might have, we might think rationally, but subconsciously we are not always rational. And yeah. 
I think that might be uh, the fatal flaw that we have. Yeah, actually, I, I don't remember where I read it, and I'm going to completely butcher the way it was done, but there was a study where they compared kind of like Harvard students with some other universities. And, you know, just to get into Harvard, like if you took the quote-unquote stupidest people who got in, um, and you would compare them to the smartest people of some universities, the Harvard worst people would still be higher than some of those other uh, universities smartest people but when you then look at how they ended up doing in life you still see kind of the same trend that like the top 20 30 percent of the university people become quite successful so it's, it, you know the conclusion of the study was kind of that it's also just about how well you perceive yourself to be doing not just how smart you actually are mm -hmm. it seems to play a big role in how how well you become at learning something yeah and it's also that also goes into the direction of if you act confidently, confidence will will come your way eventually. And if you uh, if you seem successful, then su success will come your way. Do you but agree if, with that though? If you seem successful, then you will become successful. Maybe to a certain extent. Um, especially uh, the fact that it works is apparent in some scams where uh, if it seems trustworthy, it see if it seems that there's a lot of business then it might convince more people to go uh, to participate in the scam. Or for example, mm. um, with some of the companies, uh, I, I forgot what company it was in the past, uh, I think it was Enron, it seemed super successful on papers and because of that it, it did really well in the stock market, um, but then eventually it collapsed because it wasn't true. So exactly, yeah. the perception- but, but do you think that actually works in the long run or that, that it could work in the long run? It depends. If it's if it's the basis of your confidence is your confidence, then not. But um, let's say if we take those Harvard students, um, if you're unconfident in yourself, if you don't believe in yourself, then it's very, very unlikely that other people will believe in you too. But if you believe in yourself, then at least you've got one person and the likelihood that the next person will also believe in you is, I would say, higher than if you don't believe in yourself either. Right. Mm, I wanted to expand on that question, but I lost my train of thought. Um, um, okay, well, let, let's move on to something else then, uh, maybe. Um, one of the things you said at the beginning of the interview was that you were forced to do problems. Uh, one thing, in my experience, the beginning of learning is always frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it's a fair assumption to make that you need to enjoy the suffering that starts with any learning process to be good at it? Or do you think that maybe even the assumption that the beginning is uh, frustrating is wrong? Ooh, okay. There's many parts in there. Um, mm -hmm. Let's start with the first one that you said, that, um, that you should enjoy the suffering of, of the beginning of the learning process. Yeah, sure. Um, or if, if you're more likely to learn if you enjoy that. Uh, mm -hmm. That, of course... It, I think it depends on the way you frame it. If you if you see it as suffering, like every time you, you do something new, it's going to be suffering, then maybe you're less likely to pick up new things because each time you pick up something new, it is suffering, so you're less likely to pick it up again. And in the long run, that means that you're stuck in the same place that you began. Um, but I think that the people that, quote-unquote, enjoy the suffering don't see it as suffering. Maybe they they frame it as something like a, a challenge. So they like to be challenged. And 
if you continuously challenge yourself, I, I do think it is more likely that you'll learn more new things that if you're complacent and you're happy stuck in the place that you are right now. Yeah. Um, so long answer short, yes, I think that people that enjoy challenges eventually end up uh, learning more. And um, what was the second part that you said? I think you already answered it by saying that. I mean, the second part is, 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 is the assumption that it is kind of a form of suffering at the beginning or that it should be somewhat that way. Is that even correct in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if, if it's, um, if something is not hard, then maybe it's, of course, this is for an average person, because if you're a savant or something then maybe everything is easy for you and you just need to see it right. once and then you know it. Uh, but I think that for a lot of people, it is, um, it is a challenge. And if you're okay, this is opening a, a whole other can of worms, but I think that if you, it, that it depends on whether you accept failure, because if, uh, let's say that again, with the statistic problems, if you try it once and you fail and you're like, Oh my God, I'm the worst student ever. I got a problem wrong. Mm -hmm. Then it might be really, really hard to keep going because the chance that you might have uh, or that you might make another mistake is quite high. But mm -hmm. if you're like, oh, I didn't get it right this time, thank God I have two other other problems that, uh, that I can solve, then maybe that would help in, in seeing where you can work towards instead of being afraid of uh, continuing. Right. Okay, so, so I think that's a nice segue to another question. I think this is something we discuss, I feel, quite often in some way or another. And mm -hmm. it's kind of about the definition of being successful. Because I, I think it's one thing where we differ a little bit in opinion. So I think it's interesting to discuss. Mm -hmm. So shall we start with you? What, what do you think is the definition of success? <laughs> turning it around i was doing the <laughs> questions here um no so, sure um definition of success uh for me most of it is about growth in a sense so uh growth and and the meaning that's behind it so i, I want to spend my time doing things that are meaningful uh, which is one of the reasons i started this podcast as well and i want to feel like i'm growing say I mean, every day is maybe a bit too much to say, but I want every year I want to look back and be able to see the growth that I've personally gone through. So for me, if, if I can do that every year, it will be successful. It, okay. it would be, yeah. How about you? I would say, and this, uh, of course, depends on how everyone views these words uh, differently. I think that my definition of success will be whether or not you're, you're happy. And of course, hmm. um, what makes you happy differs on ev uh, for, for every single person. So let's say that you're a person that likes, uh, that's happy when they make money, then mm, working harder to make more money is maybe, uh, so if you're happy in the sense that you are, you have enough money, then that would in my book constitute a success, but maybe mm -hmm. you don't care about money at all. Maybe you care about creative expression. So let's say you're uh, a musician and what makes you happy is being able to play music all day long and then in the end maybe share it with other people so they can enjoy it too. And if you can find a way to keep making music, uh, for example, by selling it or playing at concerts and that makes you happy, then I would also say that's a, a definition of success. Um, 
And that's why, and the reason that I say happy is because happy is a very vague term and it can mean different yeah. things for different people. Um, whereas I have a feeling that many people would agree on whether someone is successful or not. Um, for example, Elon Musk or, or Mark Zuckerberg, uh, a lot of people might not like Mark Zuckerberg, but I think a lot of people can agree that he's successful. Um, and the same goes for, let's say, your grandpa, who's maybe not doing uh, a lot right now because he's retired. Um, so he's maybe not doing a lot of things in, uh, by changing the world, but he's enjoying uh, watching his grandchildren uh, grow up um, and he's resting a lot and he has a nice garden. Then I think a lot of people would also say that that, that could be seen as successful. So I so, think success depends a lot on who you are. Right. Do, do you think that in general we could say that there's better or worse ways of being happy or becoming happy, if you will? Do you mean the ways in which we become happy or the things that make us happy? I, I guess both, because in the way you just answered the question, you seem to imply that um, you seem to apply that a lot of the happiness comes from external stuff because you mentioned uh, stuff like, you know, if you're a musician or if you care about money. So keeping the definition you just put in mind, is, is there a better or worse way to get to this, your definition of success? Ooh, that's a tricky question because, of course, good is, is also very subjective. For example, let's say that you are very happy when you take drugs, then I don't think that that is the best course of action, even though that might make you happy uh, and that might be your definition of success. Um, I don't think that that is something good long term. Um, yeah, but drugs per definition kind of make you happy when you take them. Exactly. Which is why they're so scary, right? Yeah. So, of course, if you think that uh, drugs are the way to success for you, then that might not be the best thing because long-term, that might not work out very well. So, as long as long-term you're happy, I think then it's okay. Um, of course, the problem becomes where what makes you happy makes other people unhappy. Uh, let's say you're, uh, we're going way back in time and you like conquering... Yeah other civilizations and that might make you happy that's great for you but maybe that's not the best thing for the world if uh what makes you happy makes a lot of other people unhappy so then right. it comes down to a point of perspective on uh for example mark zuckerberg again a lot of people are really mad about that their privacy is being um let's say flushed down the drain by mm -hmm. some things that uh, some companies do and that might not align with, uh, let's say, global success, that everyone is successful or that everyone is happy. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of uh, kind of maybe dangerous uh, side roads that we could go into, uh, but I want to avoid that a little bit uh, because I first want to ask you for yourself how you are currently navigating your success slash happiness then. Yeah, so uh, I think that my my definition of success, so what makes me happy, is kind of aligned with yours in the sense that I also want to grow, but then growing usually means learning new things. Um, so right now at my job, I, I learned how to work with a new kind of system uh, called Django, and 
that's really, really interesting to me because I'm seeing all these kinds of things uh, that this new system can do. Um, and that makes me feel successful because I'm learning new things. But of course, mm -hmm. that's eventually going to run out. So I can't only focus on one source of growth. Uh, so a couple of other things that I do to make me happy personally is I, I like to follow courses. I'm doing this uh, advanced statistics course from MIT. Uh, it's on mm -hmm. edX and it's completely free. Uh, of course, if you want the, the license, then you need to pay some money. But the, the material itself is, is just there for the taking. And I think this is actually a really good example of what success means to different people. Because for some people, success might mean finishing the course, uh, buying the certificate and displaying it on, on LinkedIn. That might be yeah. someone's definition of success. But for me, simply understanding the material that they're presenting, mm -hmm. that's my definition of success. So if I can understand what they're explaining and I learn something new, then I am happy. So I would be successful in that case. Right. Um, so, so I think one thing that we share, which a lot of our peers don't, is we have maybe a little bit of an obsession with the with the fire community, mm -hmm. which I think is linked to this whole discussion. Could you maybe uh, tell us what the fire community is and what you're doing with it? Yeah. So for those that don't know, fire stands for financial independence, retire early. And this is, I think, an awesome segue uh, coming from success, because I think a lot of people right now, um, they live day to day just to make sure that they have enough money to be comfortable. Um, so for a lot of things in our, let's say, society, wealth contributes a lot to whether someone is seen as successful, because money can buy a lot of things. And of course, the, the discussion on whether money makes you happy is a, a whole different topic. Uh, yeah. But a lot of people right now, um, they're focused on making enough so they can do whatever they want. And then uh, FIRE stands kind of to ensure that if you have enough wealth saved up, then you can stop working and focus on the things that you think are important and ensure that you don't have to worry about money. Uh, and that kind of takes away the drive of you have to work because if you work, you get money. And if you have money, you're successful uh, because then you have the money already there. You just keep it on the side and that makes it so that you can focus on the things you enjoy. Let's say I really enjoy uh, teaching uh, catamaran sailing to people. That might be really, really fun and really, really nice, but uh, maybe it's not as easy to raise two children while being a catamaran instructor. Uh, or let's say that uh, it's not the season, then it, uh, in the winter it, there's not as many classes, so it might be tougher. And FIRE kind of takes care of that by saying, in the beginning, you need to invest a lot of time and uh, money by investing in stocks. And usually they recommend um, broadly diversified uh, ETFs, which are basically trackers that follow an index. Uh, and usually it's a, a world index. And I really, really agree with the fact that Right now, if you invest your money and you let it grow over time, and of course, only the money that you don't need right now, then mm -hmm. in the future, maybe you don't retire at 70, but you retire at 50. Uh, and then yeah. what do you do from 50 until, let's say, the end of your life? Well, now you have 20 extra years that you can dedicate to whatever you want. So for me, for example, what if I really, really enjoy teaching math? 
then I can go and teach other people without having to worry about the financial benefit. Um, and another example of, of these kinds of things is right now I give a, um, or I, I partake in a boot camp called Rotterdam AI, where we basically just give classes to people. We teach them um, about coding in Python, about machine learning. We're gonna come up with a new one for deep learning, uh, but all of it is free because we think it's important uh, for everyone to be able to do this, to partake in these kinds of courses. But of course, if it's free, then I'm not getting paid. So right now I'm doing it out of intrinsic motivation uh, and it's okay because I have another job, so I make enough money. But maybe in the future, I would like to dedicate myself full time to this. And if I have the money left over from, let's say the, the fire decisions that I made, then I can just focus on teaching without having to worry about the financial benefit. So long story yeah. short, I, uh, I really like the FIRE community because it basically tells us if you work hard now, then you can plant some seeds that later bear the fruits of your labor. And it makes it so that the, let's say, later parts of your life can become more enjoyable because you don't have to focus as much on financial gain. Yeah, I, I, and I think in, in extreme versions of this, you see like guys and girls who are like 32, 35 years old who are fully retired uh, because, you know, they spend no money, never go out for dinner, don't have a car, don't do do anything. Uh, I feel like we're not really quite doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things you mention a lot in that is worry about money. So is that something that you worry about? So me personally, no, because I'm quite fortunate that imagine I lost my job and I'm completely, uh, I cannot do any other work. Let's say I have a huge accident and um, I need to, I, I, we live in the Netherlands, so hospital bills are not that expensive. But imagine that all my money is gone and I can never work again. Then mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough that I have a supportive family that can take care of me. So for me personally, it's not a, a major worry in the sense that, Am I going to make it for tomorrow? But of course, if you want to do something fun, let's say you want to go to Indonesia to go diving or you want to go somewhere else on a, on a vacation or you'd like to go to a nice restaurant, those things aren't free. So those are extra things in that case. And of course, we come from a, a very developed country. So mm -hmm. what for us is comfortable is way above average in a country like, let's say, Indonesia, where the average standard of living is much lower. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, what is comfortable is definitely different compared to other people, but that's very dependent on the environment that I come from, namely a very de developed country. Exactly. So, so what kind of choices are you currently making to try and put money aside? So the best, I think the best thing uh, that I could say is you need to look at the expenses that you're making uh, and you need to be conscious on what you're spending money on because let's say I like to play piano and someone else like to, likes to play the violin, then if I buy a piano for a thousand euros, they're going to be like, whoa, that's a waste of money. You should buy a violin instead. Um, mm -hmm. So just knowing what costs you're making is very, very important. And that basically comes down to budgeting. Uh, so the, the thing that I did myself is I first looked what expenses am I making and what things do I think are reasonable? What, what thing is uh, proportional to the enjoyment I get from it. And then I write it down and I make a budget and then 
basically at the end of every month the amount that I spec that that I expect to spend that month uh, I keep and the rest I just put in my savings account or invest and what that does is it makes it easier to not overspend because you already set your own limit um, mm -hmm. and when I started doing this I noticed that the biggest expense that was disproportional to the enjoyment that I got from it was uh, the food that I ate because very very often I would go out for for mm -hmm. dinner and for drinks and that would become kind of expensive. And then so when no I more thought back to, for us. sorry, so no more burritos for us. Well, no, no, no. That's <laughs> the thing that uh, I noticed that very very often what I enjoyed from those dinners were not the food, but was the company company from people. So maybe I should. Uh, go out and cook with people more often. And of course, this doesn't mean never go out eating ever again, because uh, that would also be a kind of extreme thing to, to do. But it, I, it realized, I, or I realized that um, I should eat out less often. So that was my conclusion. Uh, that being said, the biggest expense that I had was not uh, eating out. It was the holidays that I was taking, because a flight ticket is kind of expensive. And of course, if you're traveling abroad, most of the time you're eating out. Uh, right, yeah. But if I thought back to that, then I did think that those costs were proportional to the enjoyment that I got from it. So I didn't really cut down on traveling because that's something I really, really enjoyed. Whereas uh, the amount that I was eating out was, I think, disproportional to the amount of enjoyment that I got from it. So that's what I scaled down. Hmm. Yeah. And you also don't own a car, for instance, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I commute. Um, so I have some friends and for them, the trade-off is basically, do I stay at my parents' house and get a car or do I get my own place and commute? And usually getting a car and staying at your parents is cheaper than renting something. Um, but again, for me, the trade-off was that I have my own place. Uh, if I want to, I can be alone. I can be relaxed. Uh, I just have to take myself into account if I need to. Uh, and if I want to visit my parents, I, of course, can. Uh, and that, of course, comes at the cost that I don't have a car that I can uh, just travel ever anywhere to. And for me, that, that decision was justified. But for some other people, that might not be the case. Yeah. No, I, I made the exact opposite decision so far. But, um, but that's also because, for instance, kite surfing kind of requires you to have a car, right? Um, mm -hmm. Um, is there anything else there that we want to maybe explore a bit more? I'm just thinking here out loud. Okay, how about we take a segue into answering some fun questions that I've prepared? Okay, let's do it. Okay, this is uh, most likely going to be my favorite part of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> or not, I don't know, we're going to see. So, um... So, let's say you could spend one year in perfect happiness, but afterwards remember nothing of the experience. Would you do so? Uh, if not, why not? Ooh, okay. So, long or short answer is, I think, no. Um, mm -hmm. Long answer is, of course, it's nice to feel good in the moment, but I think sharing it with other people and the memories that you have from it are, at least to me, infinitely more valuable than the experience themselves. Of course, you need the experience right. to have the memory. Um, mm -hmm. 
but basically you're you're losing a year of your life and and that's basically to me as if it was someone else's life uh for example the trip that i took to or the exchange that i had in south africa uh, mm -hmm. i have really really fond memories of it and i'm really glad that i went but of course if i could go to south africa or i see someone else go to south africa at least to me i would be happier if i was the one that went and if you don't remember what you experienced it's basically like seeing someone else's uh experiences it's interesting i'm thinking about it because i think one thing that could be positive about it is you know like your your brain probably adapts to you being so happy all the time so it seems like maybe it could be like a good training you know because your brain is kind of like a muscle mm -hmm. so m maybe it would mean that on average you're going to be happier afterwards because you're so used to being happy and then then i would maybe consider it if it's kind well, of like a boot camp for a year of being happy well there's a <laughs> i might disagree on that part because there have been many 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 studies that show that you kind of adapt to your uh, your base level of happiness changes um, so th there have been a lot of studies about people that had, um, let's say, a really, really bad thing happening to them. Like they lose their leg or a really good thing, like they, they win the lottery. Win the lottery, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, at that moment, uh, that makes you really, really happy or really, really sad. But quite quickly, you return to, quote unquote, normal levels of happiness. So I'm not sure if you are perfectly happy for a year that mm -hmm. that translates to being happier afterwards as well because your standard or your baseline is higher now i see your point yeah i i mean i i think there's kind of like i think we mean two slightly different things because i think what you're hinting at is more that external events influence our lives less than we probably think in the sense that, uh, you know, when bad things happen to us, sometimes we think it's going to ruin us forever, but you often see that a year later, we're still at our baseline. But what I was um, implying was more that, you know, if you spend six, week, six weeks training heavily in meditation, you can see that people on average can be a little bit happier. So if you spend a year being in a state of happiness, then I would assume that that could lead your brain to be to to improve the baseline hmm yeah i guess it depends on where the happiness comes from whether it's intrinsic or extra uh, external yeah okay uh i'm gonna find another one of those crazy questions um are there people that you envy enough that you would want to trade lives with them i'm pretty sure i won't um and of course i think this is a bias, uh, the the loss aversion bias that you don't want to give up what you already have. Um, mm -hmm. But then, of course, I'm thinking, is it maybe selfish to not want to switch? Why would um, it be selfish? Yeah. For example, yeah, it becomes a very, it, it can become a very ethical question very quickly, a moral question of if there's someone having a not very good life somewhere else, Mm -hmm. Would you want to give them your life in exchange? And then if I say no, then it seems kind of selfish. Um, mm, but let's assume that the other person is more successful, that you, uh, let's say Bill Gates or something. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would want to switch because right now at least I have, I'm 
almost at the beginning of my life. I'm 23, so I can still well, go almost so anywhere. Hmm? Yeah. Let's hope it's it's still the beginning, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be horrible if this is close to the end, but uh, that <laughs> aside. No, so I think I'm I'm quite satisfied with both the, the people in my life, the direction my life is going, and the options that I have in the future. So mm -hmm. I don't think that I would prefer to switch. Yeah, interesting. What about I, you? I th well, I think it's a difficult question because... Uh, I think the difficult thing about life and something that we're bad at is in general imagining what other people are like or how, how they experience life. I mean, if you just see how little understanding there is for other people, that already shows me that people don't understand other people's thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a, maybe a good way to illustrate it is that I feel like often people don't even understand themselves. Like if you mm -hmm. ask people what makes you happy, um, I feel like some people don't even really know the answer for themselves. Like, I feel like some people make decisions that ultimately don't make themselves happier. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think it's complicated in that sense. Mm, um, I, think, I think you brought up a really interesting point of knowing what it's like to be someone else. Um, there's a short story that, that addresses this. Uh, and do you want me to spoil it for you? Because the reveal is kind of uh, eye-opening. But do the whole story. We have time. Yeah, okay. I won't be as good a narrator as some of the other people. Uh, and I won't voice, do it as complete. But basically, the story is someone dies. And they go to the afterlife. Uh, and they're greeted by this being that is obviously very, very powerful. And let's just say, for the simplicity of storytelling, we'll call it God. Um, so, this person has a lot of questions of, was their life even worth it? And uh, what, what happens now? And will all the people that I left behind be okay? And he gets some answers. Uh, for example, his wife uh, will feel guilty because she's happy that he's dead. And then he's like, oh, okay. I didn't expect that. Um, and mm -hmm. then there's loads of revelations like this. And in the end, it turns out he starts asking some more existential questions like, but what was the point? And, and what, what are you? Where did you come from? And it turns out that uh, the system that was right was the reincarnation system where people are reincarnated. So he's going to be a new person after this. Mm -hmm. So he's going to be born again and his life is going to continue. And then he asks, wait, but then was I already reincarnated? Is this the first time I was born? And then the God says, well, actually, you've been born many, many times and you will be born many, many times after this. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that person is a God as well. And before he can be born, he has to live through every single person's life before he can become a God. So mm -hmm. he is Hitler and all the people that he killed. And he was both uh, a murderer and the victim of a murder. And right through all these experiences combined, he becomes uh, one of these gods as well. Uh, and the short mm -hmm. story is called The Egg. I forgot by who it was, uh, but a channel that made a really, really good video about it is called Kurzgesagt, and yeah. uh, it has the yeah, same title. Sure. Yeah. I actually saw that one. Yeah, it's crazy. Beca because it implies that you are also... It, it would imply, if it were, were to be correct, that you're kind of like all the same person in the end. Yeah, right. and that the, the happiness that you bring other people is actually happiness that you bring to yourself. And the same thing with your sorrow and the same thing with 
uh, anger. If you make someone else angry, you're just making yourself angry. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. But uh, yeah, those things are very hard to control in real life, I think. Mm -hmm. um, let's do one or two more and then uh, slowly wrap up. Um, I really love the next one, which is, uh, would you give up half of what you now own for a pill that would permanently change you so that one hour of sleep a day would fully refresh you? Yes, 100%. Really? Yes, 100%. But is that because sleeping for you is already a problem or? No, it's because uh, if you just think at how much time you waste, basically imagine that I'm going to work until I'm, I'm 50, that I'm halfway through my working life, uh, assuming that I worked from m m when I was born until now. And all those hours of sleep have been pretty much wasted, if you consider the scenario. Now they're not wasted because I need those hours of sleep to be productive. But if I could mm -hmm. have only one hour of sleep, that's almost negligible to the, let's just round up to eight hours of sleep that you need. Yeah. So your day becomes half as long, let's say, or almost half as long. So yes, absolutely. All the time that I would gain in the future is absolutely worth uh, half of what I've made uh, up until now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm going to have to agree. I mean, I would be very careful with calling sleep uh, a waste because I feel like a lot of people don't take their sleep serious enough. Uh, and for me, that kind of happened uh, after reading the book, Why We Sleep, which is an amazing book. I'll put it in the, snow, uh, in the show notes. In <laughs> the snow notes, lol. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree. Um, another one then. Uh, for what in life do you feel most grateful Oof, I think uh, if you consider the, the video of the egg, of all the people I could have been born as, mm -hmm. I am so incredibly grateful that I was born into a, a country where I don't have to really worry about uh, whether we're going to eat tomorrow and whether we have an easily curable disease that uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to die of tomorrow or any of my family members for that matter. So the fact that I was born in this part of the world with all the privileges that I have and all the worries that I will never have, I think that's the thing that I'm uh, the most thankful for. Because it, it could have been, statistically, uh, this is not what the normal person in the world lives as. Uh, most people, if you, if you see what the average wage is in the world and you compare it to a minimum wage here, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, of yeah. course, the standard of living is also higher, so the cost of living is higher. But mm -hmm. still, the the fact that I'm relatively carefree and I just have to focus on where I want to be far in the future and not next week, that's a that's mm -hmm. a huge blessing, and I'm really really glad for that. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good one. I think that's a good one. Um, what about you? So. Yeah, I think that on average, I uh, I can be quite obsessive slash determined. Determined is probably a more positive way to put it. And, and I feel like that's not really something that I maybe grew, but something that I've been given. Just that I think that on average, I'm quite happy. And I feel like that's also partially being given to me. And I, I'm just so... I mean, in that, that kind of colors my entire experience of how life is. And I feel like that is... 
that's a real blessing because it, mm -hmm. it means that I'm more grateful in general, probably. It means that, yeah. So it's, it's just like a kind of precondition that allows everything else to be better. So that's why I'm happy about that and grateful for it. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Actually, would you ever like to be famous? Because I feel, you know, mm. earlier you mentioned Bill Gates and it almost sounded like maybe you just don't want to be famous in general. Well, uh, out of all the famous people, I think Bill Gates is doing an, an amazing, amazing job with all the, the good he's doing. Mm -hmm. But I think um, maybe it sounds a bit pessimistic, but I don't think that I could be a famous person because as a famous person, you have a lot of responsibilities and I'm assuming famous in a good sense. Uh, so let's say successful and rich and, and all of that stuff uh, and a lot, a lot of public um, exposure. Um, and I think it's very, very difficult to be famous in the right way. Because um, mm -hmm. once you enter that world, what defines you, I think, really easily becomes what people think of you. Um, and I'm not sure if you this is going to go slightly into the celebrity gossip uh, direction. Uh, but <laughs> did you hear about what happened with Johnny Depp and um, Amber Hart? Oh, no. I'm way behind on those things. Okay, so basically... Long story short, uh, she accused him of abusing her, uh, uh, yeah. and that was a very big scandal, so he lost a lot of uh, goodwill and some movie roles, etc. Uh, and then in hindsight, it turns out that she was the one that ab was abusing him. So now everyone's turning oh, wow. around, but all that negativity that comes towards you, even though he didn't do anything wrong, uh, he was as right as he could be, uh, but he got an enormous amount of backlash and I don't think uh, I would enjoy that so if I could avoid it I think I I would prefer it the downside of course is that um, celebrities or famous people have huge can, can sway the public enormously so when mm -hmm. someone like let's say you or me say hey let's plant a million trees then everyone will be like well that's a cool idea and that's a good idea but nah it's okay but then when all these YouTubers come together uh, and some celebrities start saying, hey, we should save the planet. How about we, we plant a million trees and you show yeah. and you take the first step and you show how important it is. You can influence so many people to do good things that I would again say it's almost irresponsible to not take that role. So there's a huge pressure um, if you're a famous person to do not only do the right things yourself, but mm -hmm. to convince other people to do the right thing as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, you see it with all those rich people that are pledging a lot of their money for a good cause in, in some way or another. Uh, also, especially with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? Um, mm -hmm. But do you feel sometimes that... Uh, do you think everyone that has that famous side should be speaking on everything? Like, let's, let's say uh, movie stars who talk politics. Mm -hmm. well of course I also think see this is the weird thing where I would expect different things of myself than I expect of other people because mm -hmm. if it was me then I would say you have to uh, do good things and try to influence people to do good things as well then of course mm -hmm. you could say is what you think is good good for everyone but let's leave that uh, to the side for now but mm -hmm. I also think it's unfair to have to do that so if you're famous, um, then I don't think it's fair 
to ask you to dedicate your life to all these things. Uh, of course, I think you should, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that if they don't, that they're automatically bad people. Some people were just good at what they did, and now they just want to mm -hmm. live their life in peace. And if people come dragging them out and saying, hey, why didn't you support planting the trees? Whereas yeah. they just didn't care. I don't think that that makes them bad people straight away. So hmm. it's, a, it's a difficult subject. I, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, Loic, this is going to be the very last question. And uh, um, it's what would you like people to take away from this conversation? Or, or is there a last thing that you want to kind of say to people? Hmm. Um, like maybe well, a slogan or something that you would want to put on a big billboard. Ooh, okay. So I, maybe you've noticed that I have trouble with short answers. So I'll do the long version and the short version. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, we talked a lot about happiness and that my definition of success is doing what makes you happy. Um, and you also mentioned meditation, how that can help. And I think a lot of people haven't consciously thought about what makes them happy. Um, and just having that conversation with yourself, seeing what makes you happy and seeing what you can do to get closer towards that goal of yours. I think that's a relatively mm -hmm. easy thing to do. And I think it's also quite important for everyone to do. So I would say before you become happy, figure out what makes you happy first. Good point. So if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, or, you know, find you on the internet what's the best way to do so um i have a youtube channel but i don't post there very very often um but yeah i think you can just put it in the in the snow notes yeah in the snow notes <laughs> okay sure all right loic thank you so much it was an honor to have you on the show mm -hmm. same thanks so, i hope sometime you will come back and we can have another one of these interesting conversations i'd love to all right i'll talk to you later Okay, see ya. Bye. Ciao. Thank you guys so much for listening to this third episode of the Monaco Moments podcast with Luik. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it with any of your friends, colleagues, or whoever you'd like to share it with. And for any of the show notes of stuff we discussed, please go to jamesmonocle.com and just type in Luik. You should be able to find it pretty easily. And I hope to see you back next time for the fourth episode of the Monaco Moments podcast. See you then.